Section 2 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 1 Starlight Ranch, Part 2. Blake moodily gazed into the embers of the bivouac fire. Never had we seen him so utterly unlike himself as on this burlesque of a scout, and now that we were virtually homeward bound and empty-handed too, he was completely weighed down by the consciousness of our lost opportunities. If something could only have happened to Gleason before the start, so that the command might have devolved on Blake, we all felt that a very different account could have been rendered for with all his rattling ranting fun around the garrison he was a gallant and dutiful soldier in the field it was now after ten o'clock most of the men rolled in their blankets were sleeping on the scant turf that could be found at intervals in the half-sandy soil below the corrals and stables the herds of the two troops and the pack-mules were all cropping peacefully at the hay that had been liberally distributed among them, because there was hardly grass enough for a burrow. We were all ready to turn in, but there stood our temporary commander, his long legs astraddle, his hands clasped behind him, and the flickering light of the fire betraying in his face both profound dejection and disgust. I wouldn't care so much, said he at last, but it will give Gleason a chance to say that things always go wrong when he's away. Did you see him up at the post? he suddenly asked. What was he doing, Carol? Poker, was the sententious reply. What? shouted Blake. Poker? I thank thee, good Tuba. Good news, good news, he ranted with almost joyous relapse into his old manner. Oh, Lady Fortune, stand you auspicious, for those fellows at Phoenix, I mean, and may they scoop our worthy chieftain of his last ducat. See what it means, fellas? Win or lose, he'll play all night. He'll drink much if it go again him, and I pray it may. He'll be too sick when morning comes to join us, and, by my faith, we'll leave his horse and orderly, and march away without him. As for Potts, and he appear not, we'll let him play hide-and-seek with his would-be reformer. Hello! What's that? There was a sound of alternate shout and challenge towards where the horses were herded on the level stretch below us. The sergeant of the guard was running rapidly thither as Carroll and I reached the corner of the corral. Half a minute's brisk spurt brought us to the scene. "'What's the trouble, sentry?' panted the sergeant. "'One of our fellows trying to take a horse. I was down on this side of the herd when I seen him at the other end trying to loose a sideline. It was just light enough by the moon to let me see the figure, but I couldn't make out who twas. I challenged and ran and yelled for the corporal, too, but he got away through the horses somehow. Murphy, who's on the other side of the herds, seen him and challenged, too. Did he answer? Not a word, sir. Count your horses, sergeant, and see if all are here, was ordered. Then we hurried over to Murphy's post. Who was the man? Could you make him out? 
"Not plainly, sir, but I think it was one of our own command," and poor Murphy hesitated and stammered. He hated to give away, as he expressed it, one of his own troop, but his questioners were inexorable. "What man did this one most look like, so far as you could judge?" "Well, sir, I hate to suspicion anybody, but 'twas more like Corporal Potts he looked. Sure, if 'twas him, he must have been drinking, for the corporal's not the man to try and run off a horse when he's in his sober senses." The waning moon gave hardly enough light for effective search, but we did our best. Blake came out and joined us, looking very grave when he heard the news. Eleven o'clock came, and we gave it up. Not a sign of the marauder could we find. Potts was still absent from the bivouac when we got back, but Blake determined to make no further effort to find him. Long before midnight we were all soundly sleeping, and the next thing I knew my orderly was shaking me by the arm and announcing breakfast. Reveille was just being sounded up at the garrison. The sun had not yet climbed high enough to peep over the Matitzel, but it was broad daylight. In ten minutes Carroll and I were enjoying our coffee and frijoles. Blake had ridden up into the garrison. Potts was still absent, and so, as we expected, was Mr. Gleason. Half an hour more, and in long column of twos, and followed by our pack-train, the command was filing out along the road whereon number three had seen the ambulance darting by in the darkness. Blake had come back from the post with a flush of anger on his face, and with lips compressed. He did not even dismount. "'Saddle up at once!' was all he said, until he gave the commands to mount and march. Opposite the quarters of the commanding officer we were riding at ease, and there he shook his gauntleted fist at the whitewashed walls, and had recourse to his usual safety-valve. "'Take heed, my lords, the welfare of us all hangs on the cutting short that fraudful man. And may the devil fly away with him. What do you think he told me when I went to hunt him up?' There was no suitable conjecture. He said to march ahead, leaving his horse, Potts's, and his orderlies, also the pack-mule. He would follow at his leisure. He had given Potts authority to wait and go with him, but did not consider it necessary to notify me. Where was he? Still at the store, playing with the trader and some understrappers. Didn't seem to be drunk, either. And that was the last we heard of our commander, until late in the evening. We were then in bivouac on the west bank of the Sandy, within short rifle range of the buildings of Crocker's Ranch on the other side. There the lights burned brightly, and some of our people who had gone across had been courteously received, despite a certain constraint and nervousness displayed by the two brothers. At starlight, however, nearly a mile away from us, all was silence and darkness. We had studied it curiously as we marched up along the west shore, and some of the men had asked permission to fall out and ride over there, just to see it, but Blake had refused. The Sandy was easily fordable on horseback anywhere, and the Crockers, for the convenience of their ranch people, 
had placed a lot of boulders and heaps of stones in such position that they served as a footpath opposite their corrals. But Blake said he would rather none of his people intruded at starlight, and so it happened that we were around the fire when Gleason rode in about nine o'clock, and with him Lieutenant Baker, also the recreant Potts. "'You may retain command, Mr. Blake,' said the former thickly. "'I have an engagement this evening.' In an instant Baker was at my side. We had not met before, since he was wearing the grey at the point. "'For God's sake, don't let him follow me. But you, come if you possibly can. I'll slip off into the willows upstream as soon as I can do so without his seeing.' I signaled Blake to join us, and presently he sauntered over our way, Gleason meantime admonishing his camp cook that he expected to have the very best hot supper for himself and his friend, Lieutenant Baker, ready in twenty minutes. Twenty minutes, for they had an important engagement, an affaire de cour, by Jove. "'You fellows know something of this matter,' said Baker hurriedly but I cannot begin to tell you how troubled I am. Something is wrong with her. She has not met me once this week, and the house is still as a grave. I must see her. She is either ill or imprisoned by her people, or carried away. God only knows why that hound Burnham forbids me the house. I cannot see him. I've never seen his wife. The door is barred against me, and I cannot force an entrance. For a while she was able to slip out late in the evening and meet me down the hillside, but they must have detected her in some way. I do not even know that she is there, but to-night I mean to know. If she is within those walls, and alive, she will answer my signal. But for heaven's sake keep that drunken wretch from going over there. He's bent on it. The Major gave me leave again for to-night, provided I would see Gleason safely to your camp, and he has been maundering all the way out about how he knew more'n I did, he and Potts, who's half-drunk too, and how he meant to see me through in this matter. Well, here, said Blake, there's only one thing to be done. You two slip away at once, get your horses, and ford the Sandy well below camp. I'll try and keep him occupied. In three minutes we were off, leading our steeds until a hundred yards or so away from the fires, then mounting and moving at rapid walk. Following Baker's lead, I rode along, wondering what manner of adventure this was apt to be. I expected him to make an early crossing of the stream, but he did not. The only fords I know, said he, are down below starlight, and so it happened that we made a wide detour, but during that dark ride he told me frankly how matters stood. Zoe Burnham had promised to be his wife, and had fully returned his love, but she was deeply attached to her poor mother, whose health was utterly broken, and who seemed to stand in dread of her father. The girl could not bear to leave her mother, though he had implored her to do so and be married at once. She told me the last time I saw her that old Burnham had sworn to kill me if he caught me around the place, so I have to come armed, you see. And he exhibited his heavy revolver. 
There's something shady about the old man, but I don't know what it is." At last we crossed the stream, and soon reached a point where we dismounted and fastened our horses among the willows, then slowly and cautiously began the ascent to the ranch. The slope here was long and gradual, and before we had gone fifty yards Baker laid his hand on my arm. "'Wait! Hush!' he said. Listening, we could distinctly hear the crunching of horses' hoofs, but in the darkness, for the old moon was not yet showing over the range to the east, we could distinguish nothing. One thing was certain, those hoofs were going towards the ranch. "'Heavens!' said Baker. "'Do you suppose that Gleason has got the start of us after all? There's no telling what mischief he may do.' He swore he would stand inside those walls to-night, for there was no Chinaman on earth whom he could not bribe. We pushed ahead at the run now, but within a minute I plunged into some unseen hollow. My Mexican spurs tangled, and down I went heavily upon the ground. The shock was severe, and for an instant I lay there half-stunned. Baker was by my side in the twinkling of an eye, full of anxiety and sympathy. I was not injured in the slightest, but the breath was knocked out of me, and it was some minutes before I could forge ahead again. We reached the foot of the steep slope. We clambered painfully, at least I did, to the crest, and there stood the black outline of Starlight Ranch, with only a glimmer of light shining through the windows here and there where the shades did not completely cover the space. In front were three horses held by a cavalry trooper. "'Whose horses are these?' panted Baker. "'Lieutenant Gleason, sir. Him and Corporal Potts has gone round behind the ranch with the Chinaman they found taken in water.' And then, just at that instant, so piercing, so agonized, so fearful, that even the three horses started back snorting and terrified, there rang out in the still night air the most awful shriek I ever heard, the wail of a woman in horror and dismay. Then dull, heavy blows, oaths, curses, stifled exclamations, a fall that shook the windows, Gleason's voice commanding, entreating, a shrill Chinese jabber, a rush through the hall, more blows, gasps, curses, more unavailing orders in Gleason's well-known voice, then a sudden pistol-shot, a scream of, Oh, my God! then moans, and then silence. The casement on the second floor was thrown open, and a fair young face and form were outlined upon the bright light within. A girlish voice called imploringly, Harry, Harry, oh, help if you are there, they are killing father. But at the first sound, Harry Baker had sprung from my side and disappeared in the darkness. We are friends, I shouted to her, Harry Baker's friends. He has gone round to the rear entrance. Then I made a dash for the front door, shaking, kicking, and hammering with all my might. I had no idea how to find the rear entrance in the darkness. Presently it was opened by the still chattering, jabbering Chinaman, his face pasty with terror and excitement, 
and the sight that met my eyes was one not soon to be forgotten. A broad hall opened straight before me, with a stairway leading to the second floor. A lamp with burnished reflector was shining brightly midway down its length. Another, just like it, fully lighted a big room to my left, the dining-room evidently, on the floor of which, surrounded by overturned chairs, was lying a woman in a death-like swoon. Indeed, I thought at first she was dead. In the room to my right, only dimly lighted, a tall man in shirt-sleeves was slowly crawling to a sofa, unsteadily assisted by Gleason, and as I stepped inside, Corporal Potts, who was leaning against the wall at the other end of the room, pressing his hand to his side, and with ashen face, sank suddenly to the floor, doubled up in a pool of his own blood. In the dining-room, in the hall, everywhere that I could see, were the marks of a fearful struggle. The man on the sofa gasped faintly, Water! and I ran into the dining-room, and hastened back with a brimming goblet. "'What does it all mean?' I demanded of Gleason. Big drops of sweat were pouring down his pallid face. The fearful scene had entirely sobered him. "'Potts has found the man who robbed him of his wife. That's she on the floor yonder. Go and help her.' But she was already coming too, and beginning to stare wildly about her. A glass of water helped to revive her. She staggered across the hall, and then, with a moan of misery and horror at the sight, threw herself upon her knees, not beside the sofa where Burnham lay gasping, but on the floor where lay our poor old corporal. In an instant she had his head in her lap and was crooning over the senseless clay, swaying her body to and fro as she piteously called to him, Frank, Frank, oh, for the love of Jesus, speak to me, Frank, dear Frank, my husband, my own, oh, for God's sake, open your eyes and look at me. I wasn't as wicked as they made me out, Frank. God knows I wasn't. I tried to get back to you, but Pierce there swore you were dead, swore you were killed at Senaguilla. Oh, Frank, Frank, open your eyes. Do hear me, husband. Oh, God, don't let him die. Oh, for pity's sake, gentlemen, can't you do something? Can't you bring him to? He must hear me. He must know how I've been lied to all these years. Quick, take this and see if you can bring him round, said Gleason, tossing me his flask. I knelt and poured the burning spirit into his open mouth. There were a few gurgles, half-conscious efforts to swallow, and then success. He opened his glazing eyes and looked up into the face of his wife. His lips moved and he called her by name. She raised him higher up in her arms, pillowing his head upon her bosom, and covered his face with frantic kisses. The sight seemed too much for Burnham. His face worked and twisted with rage. He ground out curses and blasphemy between his clenched teeth. He even strove to rise from the sofa, but Gleason forced him back. 
Meantime the poor woman's wild remorse and lamentations were poured into the ears of the dying man. "'Tell me you believe me, Frank! Tell me you forgive me! Oh, God, you don't know what my life has been with him! When I found out that it was all a lie about your being killed at Seneguilla, he beat me like a slave. He had to go and fight in the war. They made him, they conscripted him, and when he got back he brought me papers to show you were killed in one of the Virginia battles. I gave up hope then for good and all." Just then who should come springing down the stairs but Baker, who had evidently been calming and soothing his lady-love aloft. He stepped quickly into the parlour. "'Have you sent for a surgeon?' he asked. The sound of his voice seemed to rouse Burnham to renewed life and raging hate. "'Surgeons be damned!' he gasped. "'I'm past all surgery. But thank God I've given that ruffian what'll send him to hell before I get there. And you! You!' And here he made a frantic grab for the revolver that lay upon the floor. But Gleason kicked it away. "'You young hound! I meant to have wound you up before I got through, but I can jeer at you. God-forsaken idiot, I can triumph over you!' And he stretched forth a quivering, menacing arm and hand. "'You would have your way, damn you, so take it. You've given your love to a bastard. That's what Zoe is!' Baker stood like one turned suddenly into stone but from the other end of the room came prompt, wrathful, and with the ring of truth in her earnest protest, the mother's loud defense of her child. It's a lie, a fiendish and malignant lie, and he knows it. Here lies her father, my own husband, murdered by that scoundrel there. Her baptismal certificate is in my room. I've kept it all these years where he never could get it. No, Frank, she's your own, your own baby, whom you never saw. Go, go and bring her. He must see his baby girl. Oh, my darling, don't, don't go until you see her. And again she covered the ashen face with her kisses. I knelt and put the flask to his lips, and he eagerly swallowed a few drops. Baker had turned and darted upstairs. Burnham's late effort had proved too much for him. He had fainted away, and the blood was welling afresh from several wounds. A moment more, and Baker reappeared, leading his betrothed. With her long golden hair rippling down her back, her face white as death, and her eyes wild with dread, she was yet one of the loveliest pictures I ever dreamed of. Obedient to her mother's signal, she knelt close beside them, saying no word. Zoe, darling, this is your own father, the one I told you of last winter. Old Potts seemed struggling to rise. An inexpressible tenderness shone over his rugged, bearded face. His eyes fastened themselves on the lovely girl before him with a look almost as of wonderment. His lips seemed striving to whisper her name. His wife raised him still higher, and Baker reverently knelt and supported the shoulder of the dying man. There was the silence of the grave in the dimly lighted room. 
Slowly, tremulously, the arm in the old blue blouse was raised and extended towards the kneeling girl. Lowly she bent, clasping her hands and with the tears now welling from her eyes. One moment more, and the withered old hand that for a quarter of a century had grasped the sabre-hilt in the service of our common country, slowly fell until it rested on that beautiful golden head, one little second or two, in which the lips seemed to murmur a prayer, and the fast-glazing eyes were fixed in infinite tenderness upon his only child. Then suddenly they sought the face of his sobbing wife, a quick, faint smile, a sigh, and the hand dropped to the floor. The old trooper's life had gone out in benediction. Of course there was trouble all around before that wretched affair was explained. Gleason came within an ace of court-martial, but escaped it by saying that he knew of Burnham's threats against the life of Lieutenant Baker, and that he went to the ranch in search of the latter and to get him out of danger. They met the Chinaman outside drawing water, and he ushered them in the back way because it was the nearest. Potts asked to go with him that he might see if this was his long-lost wife, so said Gleason, and the instant she caught sight of him she shrieked and fainted, and the two men sprang at each other like tigers. Knives were drawn in a minute. Then Burnham fled through the hall, snatched a revolver from its rack, and fired the fatal shot. The surgeon from Fort Phoenix reached them early the next morning, a messenger having been dispatched from Crocker's ranch before eleven at night. But all his skill could not save Burnham, now known to be Pierce, the ex-sutler clerk of the early fifties. He had prospered and made money ever since the close of the war, and Zoe had been thoroughly well educated in the East before the poor child was summoned to share her mother's exile. His mania seemed to be to avoid all possibility of contact with the troops, but the Crockers had given such glowing accounts of the land near Fort Phoenix, and they were so positively assured that there need be no intercourse whatever with that post, that he determined to risk it. But go where he would, his sin had found him out. The long hot summer followed, but it often happened that before many weeks there were interchange of visits between the fort and the ranch. The ladies insisted that the widow should come thither for change and cheer, and Zoe's appearance at Phoenix was the sensation of the year. Baker was in the seventh heaven. Burnham, it was found, had a certain sense of justice, for his will had been made long before and everything he possessed was left unreservedly to the woman whom he had betrayed, and in his tigerish way doubtless loved, for he had married her in sixty-five the instant he succeeded in convincing her that Potts was really dead. So far from combating the will, both the Crockers were cordial in their support. Indeed, it was the elder brother who told the widow of its existence. They had known her and her story many a year, and were ready to devote themselves to her service now. The junior moved up to the Burnham place to take general charge and look after matters, 
for the property was every day increasing in value. And so matters went until the fall, and then one lovely evening, in the little wooden chapel at the old fort, there was a gathering such as its walls had never known before, and the loveliest bride that Arizona ever saw, blushing, smiling, and radiantly happy, received the congratulations of the entire garrison and of delegations from almost every post in the department. A few years ago, to the sorrow of everybody in the regiment, Mr. and Mrs. Harry Baker bade it good-bye forever. The fond old mother who had so long watched over the growing property for her children, as she called them, had no longer the strength the duties required. Crocker had taken unto himself a helpmate, and was needed at his own place, and our gallant and genial comrade with his sweet wife left us only when it became evident to all at Phoenix that a new master was needed at Starlight Ranch. End of section two.